So here's what we want, um, we want to be looking at today. Ian did a wonderful job. I listened to the message uh, actually this week um, around this first part of we are what we love. And he considered this, this idea of where our heart is, um, that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. That we are what we love. That what we give our attention to and our affections to actually defines what we worship. Uh, and the dangers of specifically of wealth. Now, Scripture never declares that money is evil. What it declares, it like, kind of like wine. It doesn't say that wine is evil. It says that wine, is, wine can be a blessing, but it, also can be, it can also be incredibly dangerous. There's a paradoxical nature. That the human heart in a sinful world and in a, uh, in a sinful body means that good things often become become idols for us, that good things often become the focus. But don't think that it's, you know, money's an easy target and so is alcohol. Uh, but we forget probably the greatest idol often among really devout Christians is, is their ministry to Jesus rather than the Jesus uh, who they serve. And so uh, I just would encourage you guys to, be, to rem be reminded that every good thing has the ability to become a, a problematic thing if Jesus is not the central thing. Uh, and that is essential for us to, to understand as believers. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I want to start right here. Desire that kills and vision that blinds. Genesis chapter 3 is a profound uh, insight into what Rene Girard calls mimetic desire. Mimetic desire. And what he means by that is that everything in the human spirit uh, is that creates a uniqueness between us and the animal kingdom is actually our desire, which is not the same as human nature. Animals don't function with desire. They have, they have natural instinct. Humans have desire, and desire in and of itself is good, but sin has created a problem with desire because desire is always driven by the desire for what someone else has. Gerard is genius, and, and I've been working through his works. I'm going to get him for the bookstore because I actually think him and Jacques Ellul are the two most important thinkers. Uh, they're both past now. Uh, they're the, the most prophetic voices uh, for the place that we are at currently in society. And that is understanding this concept that most things are driven by a competition. That he uses the example, if a man has fallen out of love with his wife and his wife begins to have an affair, that the affair with another man can actually recreate in him a desire for her that, that had gone away. That the desire isn't driven by the woman, but it's the desire that comes because someone else desires her. This is how, how fundamentally flawed the human heart is. And so mimetic desire is a massive issue in human society, and we see it all the way back in Genesis. And look here what, what happens. And this is what I would call desire that kills and vision that blinds. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from 
any tree in the garden. And what does the woman say to the serpent? We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, she adds to what God said, or you will die. And then this is where Satan, uh, which is, by the way, one of the most profound aspects of this text is that the serpent, we're not given any explanation of why evil is already in the garden before the fall has happened. (laughs) Uh, Which is why I always say that it is a foolish endeavor for us to try to explain why suffering exists. There is a mystery to suffering. What we should be interested in Christians is not why do we suffer, but does God care about our suffering and has he actually done something about it? Which is, the answer is a resounding yes when we look to Jesus. But here, the serpent, says this, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. So fascinating. You're going to see things in a new way. You're going to have vision. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's the thing, is that Satan in some ways is telling the truth and his lies are are powerful because his lies are always 90 percent truth and 10 percent falsehood they're misleading i I should say Uh, and the truth is is that they were already like god in the image of god but what satan was saying that was true is that they would become their own gods But what he wasn't telling her is that there is only one God. And therefore, once they became their own gods, they would become an illusion. Which is what sin actually creates of us. It turns us into shadow selves. Selves that actually have no longer any any basis in the ground of all being, which is God himself. When we choose to live the lie, when we choose to be our own gods, we are actually choosing to be a self that does not exist in the mind of God because that's not what he created us to be. That's a very complex concept, but it's, a, but it's one that's worth, worth pondering and worth thinking about. Because the shadow self, I believe, is what Jesus means when he says to the person in, in Matthew 7, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And he does not deny that they did all kinds of things in their name, but it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. They were still, even as they served Jesus, they were serving Jesus from their own selfish motivations, from the desire to maintain control of their lives. In other words, they were choosing to be their own God and then deceiving themselves by believing that they were serving Jesus when in actuality they hadn't given him any control at all. And Jesus' response is, away from me, I never knew you. And Jesus isn't playing dumb here. Does he know the person he's talking to? Yes. Does he love them? Yes. But the them they chose to be is not what he intended, and he doesn't know anything about it. It's like, I don't know who's talking to me because the person I created is not the person that has lived the life that has been lived. And I have nothing to say to that person. It's like the first thief on the cross. And, and so I think that this is important. Satan is telling her a truth, but he's not giving her the full truth. And the full truth 
the full truth is that, yes, you will be like God, but that is a false reality that will lead to your destruction. It actually, it will be a new kind of vision that leads to, an, to, a, to a, um, a blindness that will plague actually humanity throughout its history. So what does he go on to say? For God knows that when you eat, it, your eyes will be open. So the, keep, in, keep that in, in, hold on to that idea. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, notice vision, the vision now is bad. She's listened. The, the, that mimetic desire has begun. Satan has whispered into her something that she had not thought about, that there was something lacking something lacking, that there was something that she should no longer be satisfied, that God is withholding something from her. And the moment the desire enters, uh, it, all, all hell, literally all hell breaks loose. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. There's some really foolish concepts around the Genesis account, specifically in regards to Adam and Eve and, and this idea that they were somehow dumb and ignorant before they ate of the fruit. The purpose of this text is not to by any way say that, they, that God's intention was to keep humanity in some sort of naive state where there was no maturity. The point of this is that they knew, they, they already knew what was right and wrong. God says, you, I created you to be one with me and to, and to be rulers over this world that I created for you as a place to be in intimacy with me. They already knew what was right and wrong because he told them what would be wrong. So what Satan is promising them, when it says that their eyes were open, they, they knew, this is so fascinating, when it says when they ate it, she said, uh, the eyes of both of them were opened. What was it open to? It was opened to a falsehood, a shame. It was open to what would become the reality of human existence that is being played out in ways today that it has never been played out before, which is we are the ones who define what is right and what is wrong. We shall be our own gods. We shall say what is appropriate and what is inappropriate, and no one has the right to define anything. We can't say that when a person says there's something that they're not, that that's not true. That is no longer appropriate in the society in which everyone is being their own God. And is it leading to any kind of satisfaction, any kind of contentment? Or is there this newfound freedom that is actually enslaving people in ways that they've never been enslaved before? Is there a new kind of vision that is actually creating a blindness that is actually creeping over even believers' minds? Is there a new kind of darkness that people think is actually light when in reality it, is, it comes from the kingdom of Satan himself? Now, what I want you guys to understand is that this text ends with a choice. And the choice is an inevitable reality in which we can choose one of two supreme models. 
and that is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We have already chosen the kingdom of Satan every time we choose to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. We have become a slave to the kingdom of darkness. And that's why Jesus says to the Jewish people that came to him, this isn't an anti-Semitic statement when he says, your father is, is Satan himself. It's because they were buying in to Satan's lie that was leading them to a, to a desire to see um, Jesus removed from the scene because he threatened their own position. Satan wanted them to believe that they were rulers of their own lives and that Jesus was a threat to that position, specifically the religious leaders. And what does he say? Your father is the kingdom of... This doesn't have anything to do with, them, with their Jewishness. This has to do with the human condition, that the human heart will either surrender to the kingdom of God or it will succumb to the kingdom of darkness. I want to just state that as we dig into this text. We're just looking at three verses today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, 23, and 24. Um, and it's Jesus' final statements uh, around, uh, and he uses money, mammon, uh, which is money personified. Really, it's just a word in, in Hebrew, it's just a word that, that meant greed. Um, it's not money in and of itself, but it's the desire to keep what is mine and to protect what is mine and to covet what others have. One of the principles that Gerard points out uh, in, in mimetic desire is that basically the greatest sin that we create, that we commit against one another is actually the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Because he said if we actually, we actually uh, obeyed the 10th commandment, the other four that the other commandments that precede it, the four that precede it, would actually no longer be necessary. It is covetousness that leads to dishonesty. It's covetousness that leads to adultery. It's covetousness that leads to, uh, to, to, to lying. And it's covetousness that leads to ultimately murder. And violence is always the end game in the, in a king, in the kingdom of Satan, which is a profound thing. So the first thing I want us to consider in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, is the is the positive side of what Jesus is calling us to, and it is the word contentment, which is connected to having a generous eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Jesus wants us not to imitate him, which is one of the, one of the great, uh, I think, um, uh, missteps of the church today is this idea that what we should be imitating when it comes to Christ is, is just doing the things that he did. What I think that Jesus is calling us to, and I agree with Gerard on this, is he is calling us to imitate his desire. And his desire was to be one with the Father. In fact, personhood, or I should say self in the way that we think about it, uh, was not a part of Jesus' conversation. Everything he did, he was pointing people to the Father. He says, 
He goes, I only speak those things which please the Father. I only do those things which please the Father. I have come to do your work, O Father, to please the Father. And the Father's response to the Son's surrender to him was what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What was the Father pleased with? Jesus' behavior? It was Jesus' allegiance his desire to be one with the Father that led to right behavior. We get hung up on what Jesus did and we miss the central point, which is what drove him to do what he did. (laughs) We don't understand the affections and that's why our Christian lives are often marked by frustration. You aren't gonna feel closer to God because you prayed more and you fasted more and you gave more and you went to church more if all along you're still trying to control your own life if you're still trying to control the outcome because you can be one of two kinds of people the person who tries and fails and then just feels guilt and shame or the person that succeeds uh, um, because they're more disciplined and they feel some kind of uh, self-righteousness whether it's self-righteousness or self-hatred the problem with both of those words is that self is at the front of them (laughs) And that's an issue. Jesus is calling us to to look at what drove him to do those things. Now, I do believe in fasting and praying and reading the word and and serving uh, the world around us, but those things must come out of a, a heart that is content with making Jesus Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. One of the the things, I love that Jesus puts an emphasis on money because money is such an easy way to tell what the heart is given to. And and here's the thing, it doesn't matter if if you are a person of great means or you're a person that has nothing. You can be a person who is poor, who is always scheming on how you're going to get rich, and you can be a person who's rich who is always scheming on how to keep what you have and how to make more. Uh, the, the, the question is, is, is what is your God? And for both the person that's always dreaming about being rich and the person that is rich, it, the, the possibility that the God is the same, the God of mammon, and, and the God of mammon will bring destruction whether you ever achieve wealth or you have wealth and don't see the power in having a generous eye. I once asked my, a dear friend of mine who is a major hedge, hedge fund um, guy on the East Coast and uh, extremely successful. And I asked him, I said, how is it that you have maintained such, uh, such um, a humble spirit uh, and so Jesus-focused? I just don't, I don't think I could handle the kind of wealth that you have. And I don't know how I would, would not just become fearful of losing what I have or, because the more we have, the more we become fearful of, what we, of losing what we have. Uh, that's what creates a scarcity mentality. Churches have that happen all the time. When a church begins, it's all risk because there's nothing to lose. And then the church grows and you get staff and there's budgets and there's buildings and all of a sudden you're like, we gotta protect what we have. Uh, same principle <laughs> on individual basis. But I love what my friend said to me. He said, I go, what is the key uh, to maintaining a humble posture in allowing Jesus to still be Lord in your life. And he says, he goes, never stop giving it away. 
the only protection I have found against wealth becoming a god is by giving it away. <laughs> and then I said, I could, I could use some. <laughs> I have the gift of receiving. Please. <laughs> and he did. He just gave me 100,000. No, he didn't. I, I dreamt it, though. And I told him it was a word from the Lord. <laughs> but the fact is, is that that's so true. That, that what Jesus is saying here, if your eye is healthy, uh, another way he's saying is if your eye is generous. In other words, the, the, what, what turns vision into blindness is when the vision is turned inward upon one's own heart. I actually believe that what will make hell, hell, is that we think of it as some sort of terrible medieval chamber where God tortures people or Satan is somehow the ruler over hell. That's not, that's, that's a, that's a medieval vision of, of hell, uh, not, not a biblical vision. I think it would be probably more proper to think of hell as an insane asylum because it's a place where the, where the fire burns, but it's a black flame. What does that mean? It's blindness. It's blindness because the eyes are turned inward upon self. Relationship, it's a place where a relationship doesn't exist. And this is why Citizen Kane is such a powerful movie because relationship is the thing that is missing at the end of the movie when he cries out for Rosebud and we discover all it is is a wagon that he had when he was a kid. It's that, that he dies alone with all this stuff. And, it, and how many people die miserable and lonely. And this is one of the great lies. If you want to know how powerful the kingdom of Satan is and how easy it is for us to become selfish, is just think about the ways. This is, I, I write about this in my book, which, by the way, came out on Tuesday. And we have it in the bookstore. Um, and I've, and it was, I found myself immediately depressed after it came out because it was like, I don't know what's supposed to happen because I've never done this before. I found out on Tuesday I had the number one selling book in Christology. And then I just started laughing. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a category. Like, like anybody's going to be like, what's new in Christology? Uh, I felt like that was like getting the number one book uh, as an author from Longview, Washington. Like it doesn't, it really is like, is there like four people in that category? Um, but I'm number one. I'm not number four. Uh, it's kind of like when I ran track, you know, I, I always came in third if there were four runners. I never came in last, but I was never going to be better than second to last because I was really slow. <laughs> so uh, it's amazing. But once again, even the, we, we, put our, we pour ourselves into things. What's the goal? Writing a book, I had to ask myself, what's the goal? I think, do I want a bestseller? Well, of course you want your thing to do well. But what's the motivation? And I think, honestly, I had like almost this tension all week of realizing like, the, and it's kind of like when you release a record, you're so excited, you're like, this is the best thing I've ever done, and then nobody notices, and you're like, okay, well, the next thing will be the best thing I've ever done. It doesn't matter if we fail or succeed, we still are the masters of convincing ourselves that we deserve more. And I think the generous eye I thought about this a lot with the release of the book. The generous eye is like, Lord, you know what? I'm just grateful that, you, that I was able to put down in words what matters so much to me, which is you. And the message is for, is for you and for your people. And I don't have to worry about what it does because you get all this pressure. You've got to be on social media. 
why would anyone want to see me repost the same post? Every time someone says, I read the book, why would I post that again? You've already seen that picture. I don't understand it. Someone can explain that logic to me later. I'm like, I hate this. I hate what it creates in me. It doesn't create in me a generous eye. It creates in me a fearful spirit. It says a lot. That was just a bonus, by the way. I'm, I just needed to work that out in front of you. Um, <laughs> which is the idea that, that the world is constantly telling us that we need, to, we need to grab a hold of this idea that we can be our own gods. And that if we had what others had... We would, we, would, we would treat it differently. I've said that before. Man, if I was rich, I would give so much money away. It's like, well, that's probably why you won't be rich. <laughs> and, or more importantly, what a wrong attitude, because it's the idea that like, somehow I have more self-control uh, than, than any other person. No, the fact is, is that the generous eye is the eye that isn't focused on self at all. It is the imitation of Christ's desires, which is, I just want to be one with God. I want to love God, and I want to love my neighbor. And I think that this is a powerful thing for us to be thinking through. The eye is the lamp of the body. You know, the Jesus said that we would be the light of the world, that we are the light of the world because he's the light of the world, and it is Christ in us. And what darkens, and, and the eye is truly the window, to the, it is the window to the soul. And, and you can see that. Have you ever seen that, looked into someone's eyes and there's just a darkness? Or have you ever seen someone that's plagued? I just ran into a young man the other day um, that was clearly uh, hooked on, I can only imagine, a, a solid combination of fentanyl and methamphetamine all at once. And there was just, a, his eyes were literally black. And I was struck by that. It's like it's turning a whole population into, into a type of zombie. Uh, and there's a deadness uh, that comes because their, their God uh, is actually is the drug. And the drug owns them. And the drug doesn't have any personality or any soul. And so it leaves the, 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 the victim it's very much like a zombie movie where they are now under the control of this, of this infection. And that infection robs them of their personhood in a way, where they're controlled by the drive to keep what is already a dead body alive. And it's a tragic, it's a tragic thing, uh, the way that the kingdom of Satan works. Contentment is our belief that God has us where he wants us and that we can trust that if we are surrendering to him daily that he will work in and through us that we're not worrying about tomorrow because today is a day worth rejoicing in and worth entering into because as long as we are alive we should live we should live in Christ and pray that he transforms our desires, that we aren't driven by what others have, that mimetic desire that brings destruction and violence to society. We are meant to show a different path, which is that we have the same desire as Jesus because Jesus dwells in us and we want to be one with God. And to be one with God means that we have to be poured out for one another. Look at verse 23. But if your eyes are unhealthy, 
This is so interesting. Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If contentment is what leads to the generous eye, a contentment that I belong to God and He has called me to this moment and I'm going to live for Him and for others, the opposite of that which Jesus points out, and this is the difference between those that are under the kingdom of Christ and those that are under the kingdom of Satan, is covetousness which can be described as the black flame. And the reason I call it the black flame is this. Look at how mysterious this verse is. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness. The light that is within you is darkness. Now this speaks to a deception of the belief that I am free when I am my own God. This is, this is the, the motto of the secular age, which is more religious than any age ever before. Don't think that we are less religious because we live in a secular society. We are more religious. It's just that our worship is more horizontal than it is vertical. I got sucked in this morning. I was going to work on something and something popped. This is why I reject my publisher's request for me to be posting all the time. Because like now Instagram, Instagram is just for, for, for people my age, which I have to accept middle-aged people who do not have the capacity nor the understanding uh, nor the emotional bandwidth for TikTok. So, what we do is we watch TikTok reels on Instagram. And then baby boomers watch TikTok reels on Facebook that were first on Instagram. It all works this way. Uh, but none of that matters because the result is the same. A, a, a mind-numbing stupidity that is, that is taken over our, oh my gosh, I can't even believe the positive the positive, like I just feel so filled up when I watch music and then someone looking into the camera and then it's somebody else's voice from another recording about being nice to people. I'm like, why don't you just go be nice to people? I don't understand. How much time? You spend so much time making a video about being nice to people. I'm not convinced that you had time to be nice to people. It's like the, it's like the Darcy and I laugh like these, there's this group of like, health gurus that are kind of new age goddesses out of LA and they're always like doing amazing new age things in amazing places, being one with the universe. But there's a whole stinking crew filming them be one with the universe. Like they're like me, me meditating in Joshua tree under the moon in a crazy like yoga position and with like really fancy clothes on and perfect hair and makeup and they're like wait a minute, you're not by yourself in the wilderness. You got like 25 people there. <laughs> None of this makes any, any sense, but all of it, I believe, is an, is an example of the kingdom of darkness convincing us and lying to us now in these little 
five-second blips of telling us how it is that we can be satisfied. If you do this diet, if you do this care, if you do this exercise, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's CrossFit groups. It's, you know, like that, what's that guy, like the, the, the guy that turned out to be fraudulent that said he, like he was, he was the most ripped, like 60-year-old you've ever seen in your life, and he just goes around the world without his shirt on, and everyone acts like that's stinking normal. And he's like, I eat the livers of live cows every day. And he's like, and that's why I'm this way. And there's like, actually, he just took tons of steroids and even had implants put into his stomach. But we're like, we listen, I'm going to be like that guy. That's freedom. It's not freedom. It's weird. It's so weird. It, it, it would be more funny if it wasn't so tragic. And the fact is, is that this is the kind of darkness, but we listen to this and we think it's light and it's darkness. And, like, who cares if you're 50 and have a six pack? I mean, be healthy, but you're still fighting against the inevitable death. Death. It's the greatest thing that came out of COVID is to remind us of our mortality. We act all shocked that people died. People die every day. People, lots of people die. Everybody actually dies. The statistics are still one per person for death. And I think the eye being unhealthy is a picture of us listening to the kingdom of darkness. Now listen to this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 um, through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them, for everything in the world. And he's not talking about, for God so loved the world. We're talking about the system that is under the, under the sway of the evil one. Jesus referred to Satan himself as the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. Satan offers Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus does not deny that they are under his power. In fact, at the end of this upper room discourse, he says, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. And we're told that the cross was the place where Jesus utilized Satan's own mechanism, that violent mechanism, the we've got to get rid of the scapegoat mechanism. We have to get rid of this person. And the only way to get rid of them, if we want to protect what is ours, is by murder. The jealousy of the religious leaders turned the crowds against Jesus and that mob mentality. Uh, it's what Gerard calls mimetic snowballing, is that the moment we desire what another has, it doesn't take long for it to become a collective desire and then the need for the scapegoat to bring some semblance of peace back to a community. It's Satan's great way of keeping his kingdom of violence alive without actually annihilating himself, just like a virus. He doesn't want to go extinct, so he can't kill off everybody. He has to give some sort of false semblance of peace so that he can keep repeating the cycle of imitation and, and de desire misplaced, which leads to violence again and again and again that brings a brief amount of peace, but it's not a real peace, and it cannot sustain itself and actually leads to even greater and greater violence, which is what we see happening in the world right now. But I love this. The lust of the flesh is, these are the principles of, of the world under his rule. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 
comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires will pass away. I actually have come to the conclusion that one of the key things it means to be made in the image of God is that we are people that actually have desire. But the very thing that makes us image bearers is also the thing that gets twisted up the most because of sin. Sin causes a twisting of that God-given image, the ability to desire to be with Him and with one another in intimacy. Now it becomes competition. It's, I want to be God. I don't want you to be my God. I want, I want what He has or she has. And this is when the light that is in us, the lies that it is right and good to take control of your life and to believe in yourself and to, you can do anything you put your mind to. Man, these are lies. I was talking with uh, Zion and he was telling me how he, um, how he got, uh, he was debating with someone why, um, why horror films were better for you than Disney. And I actually agree with him, by the way, uh, fully. Um, and I might be responsible for his love of horror films. Uh, because Disney, the messaging of Disney is you can be anything you put your mind to. It's that positive thinking, like you don't need anyone, you don't need anything, just yourself and your willpower. But the horror film tells a totally different story. The world isn't safe, somebody's trying to kill you, and you need to be rescued. And I think, I'm like, Zion, that's an amazing, you should write a book on that. That's an amazing idea. Because it's true. The world's not so, how can you watch that? And I'm like, because I actually like it when people watch horror films. Not, I don't like slasher films, but I actually love spiritually intense horror films. Like, I think The Exorcist is a great movie. Um, and the reason I think that is because it takes something that intense to sometimes shake people out of this false belief that everything's a material world. The world actually believes in the dominions of darkness more than it believes in Jesus. But sometimes we need to be reminded there is a real battle between good and evil. Not that you need to go out and watch The Exorcist, but maybe we should do that on a Friday night for all our kids, right? I'm just joking. You're like, you're a terrible pastor. I'm never going to listen to you again. <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that often the things that are touted in our society as good are actually the most insidious realities. And I think that this is why we need to understand this. This is what I think the passage is getting at. If Jesus' desire, as we have Christ in us, is that we would actually be, begin to participate in his desire to be one with the Father and to be poured out for others, Satan's desire, and what happens when we become born again? Christ comes to what? Dwell within us. Well, what happens when Satan is our ruler. The light within you is darkness. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 15, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as what? An angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Now, Listen to this statement that Gerard makes in I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning. Like Jesus, Satan seeks to have others imitate him, but not in the same fashion and not for the same reasons. He wants, first of all, to seduce. Satan, as seducer, 
is the only one of his roles that the modern world condescends to remember a bit, primarily to joke about it. Satan likewise presents himself as a model for our desires, and he is certainly easier to imitate than Christ, for he counsels us to abandon ourselves to all our inclinations in defiance of morality and its prohibitions. If we listen to Satan, who may sound like a very progressive and likable educator, we may feel initially that we are liberated, but this impression does not last because Satan deprives us of everything that protects us from rival, rivalistic imitation. He may sound like a progressive educator that has come to free us from the tyranny of moral boundaries, but has anyone ever felt free when all boundaries are removed? No, because it's not what we're created for. Not surprising then that the darkness within us is holding on to the principle just as Jesus comes to dwell within us and turn us into the light of the world, Satan wants us to imitate him so that he can actually produce in us the darkness of his paltry imitation. And then that is a terrifying thing. Well, let's look at that last verse. In verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus brings it back to specifically a topic of money, God and money, but really this can be applied to anything under the, under the kingdom of Satan. No person can serve two gods because there's only one God. And it's very clear that Jesus is making it clear that money is not a God, but it becomes one when we worship it. And we become like the things we worship. We become like the things we worship. The addict begins to look like what the drug actually does to them. You ever seen like people that, are, that fall into the trappings? It's one of the things that always trips me out about Southern California is Southern California has a weird, there's a weird stronghold on, um, on outward appearances. It's like the place where everybody is physically fit. Everybody is perfectly tan. Everybody, there's, and it's like the land of fake things, fake body parts, fake hair. I mean, it, I've seen more, more cat ladies and men there than any, well, I saw a lot in Las Vegas and also in Aspen. Um, but it's amazing, this attempt, like plastic surgery and, it's, and the millions and millions and millions of dollars spent to create an illusion. Uh, the, the money spent on fancy things and, and it's all driven by what you wear and, and what car you drive and are you staying up on the newest devices. And it's like, it's not surprising that what it turns people into is like a Ken and Barbie doll. It's like there's no substance. It's like it's an outward beauty that actually can be quite nauseating uh, because there's no, you lose your depth when you are controlled purely by what can be experienced with the senses. Uh, we need to remember that we're spiritual beings and we are meant for relationship and the thing that brings beauty is the depth of personhood. Have you ever met someone that actually isn't very physically attractive but their personality is so beautiful that it doesn't take long for you to see them in a completely different light? And have you ever met anyone that's incredibly beautiful but turned out to be shallow and mean-spirited and it doesn't take long for you to actually think of that person as ugly? Uh, it's amazing that the light that is in us, if it's darkness, 
It doesn't matter how good you look if you're shallow and horrible. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter, uh, and we shouldn't be caught up with, I want to be like that person because what we should be after is an inner beauty that comes from a surrender to Jesus. And we will look like the kingdom of Satan, which is ugliness, even though at first it comes across as beauty. But it's a beauty that actually brings death. It's a false beauty. There's an amazing book, and I'll close with a story that I read by Charles Williams called Descent into Hell. Uh, and I think it's his greatest novel. He was one of the Inklings, probably the most controversial Inkling. Token left the Inklings over him because he didn't like his fascination with the occult. But I actually think Williams had the most powerful ability to describe both good and beauty and good and God's love um, and darkness, in the dominions of darkness. And in the descent into hell, there is a, there is a historian who discovers that, his, um, that he has lost out on this major English uh, award uh, for being the greatest historian in England. And he's been asked to help out um, on this play, this historical play that's, that's happening uh, in, in this college town in the UK. Uh, and his obsession with being number two <laughs> as a historian, being looked over, and this other guy being picked in his place for the award that he thought he deserved, uh, combined with his, his um, fascination with a young woman in the play, uh, his pride leads to a desire, an unhealthy desire for a, for a girl that's young enough to be his daughter. Uh, and that desire actually produces uh, he calls forth a succubus, which is a female demon, and she comes in the form of the young woman. And, he, and it's the creepiest story, but it's such a powerful depiction of evil in the way that it imitates beauty, but it actually comes up empty. And she comes to him, this demon comes to him because he's basically sold his soul to the devil through his pride and through his arrogance and through his lust. And she looks just like her, but the moment he tries to get actual comfort for, from her, it says that he tries to touch her hair so that he can feel close to her, that immediately her hair, hair feels like that of a dead, of a corpse. And it's just this powerful picture of like, it's all, it's all a falsehood. It's all a shell. It's all a masquerade. And, and I think it's a powerful picture of that when we surrender ourselves to the kingdom of Satan, it has diminishing returns. You know why I quit drinking? It isn't because alcohol is bad, it's because alcohol was becoming a replacement for me of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And with that came diminishing returns. Any peace that I received when I would drink after a stressful day at work uh, would, uh, would give way to greater anxiety the next day and greater conflict in my marriage and greater tension with my kids and it, and, and it pushed me to the edge of that duplicity that can so quickly haunt us as Christians, where we think we're surrendered to Jesus, but it's always Jesus plus, and then you name, you fill in that gap. Jesus plus alcohol. Jesus plus this, the endless entertainment that I, that I absorb and the, the hours I spend in social media. Jesus plus my service for him, which he needs to be impressed with. Even these good things, Jesus plus my kids, because if I didn't have my kids, I don't think I could love Jesus. You see how it, it doesn't have to be bad things. And I ask you the same thing that the Lord asked me. Do you really want me? 
Do you actually hunger for me, Josh? Do you trust me to be the source of your peace? Or are you going to pursue that through the kingdom of Satan because you can't serve both without being divided? And this is why Jesus said this in Revelations 3. You say, I am rich, speaking to the church of Laodicea. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We only have one choice. Who will we give, our control, uh, give control to? Don't think you're in control if you think you're the master. You have, you have bought into the lies of the kingdom of darkness. And this is why every day should be a day of returning to the heart of the Father. And if we make the right choice, what we'll discover is that there is a poverty that provides and there is a blindness that sees. And Jesus says, I will put salve on the eyes and we become, we become not only able to see but actually able to hear the knock at the door. But sometimes it requires a stripping away, a stripping away of the things that are hindering his ability to be all that he wants to be in and through us. Jesus loves you. And I agree with Lewis. We are like children making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what it's like to have a vacation at the sea. Endless joy awaits us, and yet we continue to cling to our filthy rags and think somehow that if I can just hold on to them, I'm going to be happy. But happiness is not the goal of the Christian. It's being one with God and being a conduit of His grace to a lost and broken world. And that is where we will find joy, which surpasses happiness because joy is something that is supernatural and will sustain us into eternity. Jesus loves you. So I ask you, what do you serve today? Who are you serving? Are you imitating the desires of Christ or the desires of the ruler of this world? I pray liberation over you as a community that Jesus indeed would set you free from the lies that you are free so that you can discover what real freedom is once he's your master. Amen?